Shadowcast, episode 36, an introduction to Nightblade Magazine. Rhonda Parrish is a writer and founder and editor of Nightblade Magazine. She loves sushi, World of Warcraft, and naps. You can visit her blog at www.rondaparish.com. She has provided us with three stories for this introduction. The first two will be read by Monster Matt Patterson. He writes for HorrorNews.net and Zombie Inc. Comics, who published his horror comic book, Wolf's Run. He is also the author of Monster Matt's Bad Monster Jokes, Volume 1. When he isn't writing, he's a mask maker, with some micro-budget film credits. He was also the MC of the Buffalo Monster Fest 2010, and he classifies himself as an entertainer-slash-horror-host-type ghoul. With that, let's get to the stories. The first is Shine On by J.A. Tyler. J.A. Tyler is the author of nine novels, or novellas, including the recently released Inconceivable Wilson by Scrambler Books in 2009, and the forthcoming A Man of Glass and All the Ways We Have Failed by Fugue State Press in 2011. He is the founding editor of Mud Luscious Press and is also on the editorial staffs of Dezank Books, Monkey Bicycle, Rumble, Big Other, and Tarpaulin Sky. For more, visit www.mudlusciouspress.com. Hello, Maniacs. My name is Monster Matt Patterson, and I've been asked by this program to share with you a new story written by J.A. Tyler, and it's called Shine On. Dawn. To begin, to appear, to develop, etc. The room was complete black, sticky darkness. There was not a tangible piece of light anywhere save the stark bluish green of the clock radio and the tiny dim red of the smoke detector. Drainer's palms were all sweat and confusion. Something was not right. Peeling back the covers, the room was tense and stuffy. The air was laced with humidity and the legs of his boxers were tangled in wetness. When he had gone to bed the night before, Drainer had pulled the vertical blinds down until they clicked on the windowsill. Then he'd drawn back the sliding cloth curtains to the center of each window pane. Though his apartment was three floors above the community pool, every night he could still see the reflection of tumbling watery light and hear the voices of lustful teenagers and swirling hot tub vibrations. But this morning, he heard nothing outside except for a slight static hum, echoing and meaningless. The clock read 2.33, and Drainer assumed it was a restless stomach that had awakened him, but the squelching heat felt more like midday than midnight and the light next to the PM symbol was lit. Drainer suddenly wasn't tired anymore. His silvery watch read 2.35, but it also showed afternoon, not morning. Drainer drug himself to the window, his limbs numb with a long sleep, and pulled back the blue cotton curtains in one sliding thrust. There was still no light, not even between the slats of the vertical blinds. Quickly and nervously, for things seemed even stranger now, he gripped the pull rope of the blinds and yanked them up. He could feel the dust fly off the thin plastic, but still no light. Instead, Drainer was facing a solid mass of total darkness. 
He squinted through the glass, but could make out nothing more than emptiness, nothingness, the feeling of being totally and completely lost. There were no stars, no moon, no horizon, no trees, and no buildings. Nothing. And all at once, a.m. versus p.m. seemed to count for very little. Drainer stepped back from the window in a rush, closed his eyes tightly, and took a deep breath. And when he went back to the window, the view was the same. Nothingness. Panic was beginning to set in, so he did what he could. He sought to make the unreal actual change magic to reality. He struggled against the window for a good minute or two before he realized that the flip latches were still locked. He snapped each one up and then slid the window open expecting a rush of fresh air. In its place he felt nothing, like opening into one closet from another. There wasn't any clean air. Again he took a breath, but this time no step backwards. He did what seemed normal at this point, wrenching the screen into the room and stretching his hand out into the darkness. His fingers crumpled against something solid before going even two or three inches. It felt like cement, solid and cold. It raised the hair on the back of Drainer's neck. The darkness was deceptive because it was not out in the distance. What had looked to Drainer's eyes like a pitch-black landscape was nothing more than a solid dark mass completely blocking and covering his window. He felt up and down its space, feeling the smooth texture from top to bottom and right to left. The darkness covering the window didn't budge even the tiniest bit with Drainer's most straining effort. Claustrophobia was glowing like an infant in Drainer's gut. Running to the front room windows, he tore the curtains off their rods and saw the same darkness living there, and it was only a matter of thirty seconds before he had discovered every window in the apartment was similarly tangled in thick, bizarre coverings. Drainer hit the lights, each one in succession, around and around the apartment. And with each added light, there was more black, more coverings, and the details showed nothing but smooth, instant black. There was only one exit point left. The front door. And this was how Drainer was beginning to think of it, in terms of where he could get out into the open space, beyond his living quarters, back into reality. His brain was contracting with the confined space. And a deadbolt later, Drainer was staring at something that his mind simply could not comprehend. It was as if he had been buried in a landslide of blackened cement. The solid mass barricaded the entire doorway and was seamed with what looked like a weld of stone to wood. No way out. No way out. He kicked and pushed and clawed at the obstruction, but it showed no signs of his persistence. It remained immovable and incomprehensible. Drainer made a second round to each window, only to find them still sealed beyond any of his powers. He turned on the TV, hoping for answers, but was greeted with static instead. The radio was likewise a mass of noisy, but meaningless static. Drainer was frightened, as though he was in a dream. He pinched himself. Imagine going back into a sleeping body. Nothing worked. He sat with dull sigh onto the well-worn couch and placed a fist underneath his chin. The thinker. Awaken. To make active or alert.
He first tried a screwdriver and a pair of scissors. Neither made a scratch. The claw end of the hammer made a little dent here and there, but nothing that would lead him out any time soon. Pushing and clawing made no difference. He tried the phone, but it was dead. He tried his cell, but there wasn't any service. Eventually, he reverted to screaming and crying, which passed the time but did nothing for the situation. It was hopeless, and Drainer was getting desperate. It had already been three hours, and he was stuck inside his home, knowing literally nothing about anything. He didn't know what time it was, what was happening, or how to get out. Drainer had already found, too, that the water was not working. The pipes hissed and gasped when he turned the knob, but not a drop fell from the faucet. Then in mid-swing of the hammer, repeating a movement already done ten times over, the lights flickered and went out. It was pitch black. The torture had begun and Drainer was done with it. He beat the hammer against the blockage with a dull thudding and no real effect. At least not until his tired arm slipped and the blunt end of the hammer took out a good-sized chunk of plaster and drywall to the side of the doorway. In the darkness, he felt around for the edge of the hole he'd made and began rapidly and violently swinging for the target. He heard pieces of wall pile onto the floor, and later he felt wires and nails and splinters of wood. Finally, he saw a puncture wound of light streaming through the wall. It was a dull gray light, like that made by reflecting clouds moments before a thunderstorm, but it was light nonetheless. Eyes to the hole, he could make out the sidewalk and the trees of the outside. So he screamed with joy and banged all away, all the more virulently at the expanding hole. The air smelled wrong and the static hum was growing louder, but Drainer didn't care. He was making something happen. When the hole was the size of his shoulders, Drainer dropped the hammer and pushed himself through the opening and dropped helplessly down to the cold sidewalk. He took gulps of air and waited for his pulse to calm. But he didn't find peace here either. Right away, there was a multitude of new problems. Nothing was right on the outside. Nothing was the same, and yet nothing looked different. The clouds were tracing the sky with lightning speed, like watching a time-lapse of a moving storm front. They were moving much faster than any clouds Drainer had ever seen before. But the odd effect was that nothing else here was moving. The trees, branches yet to form the buds of spring, stood stock still. And standing up on the cold sidewalk, Drainer felt an enormous wave of heat surge over him. But the clouds in the sky were dark with gray and blacks. The cement felt chilled, but the air was making him sweat profusely. Like the moving clouds in the still trees, everything in the air indicated sunshine and bright white but there was nothing but dull grayness all around. It was like lightning and snow, not unbelievable per se, but truly a fear and feat of something unnatural. Looking farther up, still unmoved from his original place on the sidewalk, Drainer saw what he should not have, the sun and the moon. In the corner of the sky behind a mass of furiously rolling clouds was the sun struggling to light the open space but being drained by the ever-moving clouds. Opposite that picture was the moon, also buried underneath trailing clouds. And as the gray crawl clouds tripped and skipped past the moon, 
Draynor could glimpse it enough to see that, like the sun, the moon was also putting out as much light as it could. Yet the sky was still relatively dark, as the air and the ground. With the next thing he saw, even though Draynor was a man of self-possessed nature and strong will, he wet himself uncontrollably. It was the situation of the surrounding apartments. He lived in a community housing six or seven buildings, each with its ten apartment units. Drainer lived on the first floor, unit C-101, and from his vantage point on the sidewalk, he was looking up at the nine units, top and bottom, that spread east from his corner location. And down the line, on every window and every door were the black-seamed coverings. They were just as, as imposing and vicious outside as they had been from the inside. Expanding his view, Drainer saw that every apartment unit, from his building on down the street to the next six or seven, was covered with these black, locking leeches. No one could get out. They were all locked inside their own homes without electricity, water, fresh air, or any way to communicate. Drainer was lost now, both physically and mentally. He saw what was happening right in front of his eyes, but he somehow couldn't come to comprehend it. It was a blur of abstract. Nothing seemed real. He fled down the sidewalk and out into the neighboring subdivision, but he only found the same thing. Groups of frightening blackness covering every possible way in or out of every home on every street. This was the last strangeness that Drainer witnessed before he blacked out and crumpled to the sidewalk in a heap of flesh and blown. Wet spot running down his pant leg, hair disheveled from sleep, blood slowly soaking the gray cement around his mind. Stumble. To walk unsteadily. When he came to, Drainer's head hurt incredibly and there was sticky dried blood matting his hair and darkening on the sidewalk. He was stuck for anything. Looking up from his prone position on the ground, Drainer saw that this was nothing imagined. Every window and every door was covered in solid, hideous black. The sky looked cold, but the air was hot. The sun and the moon were both out at once. And even though they both looked lighted, the sky was stormy darkness. A short block away and Drainer was on the corner of Livington and Moss, a relatively major intersection of the city and how odd it was to see not a single car and not a single person. The thoughts started to roll now. Why was he the only one out of his home? Hadn't anyone else thought to break out? Hadn't anyone else managed some type of escape? What would he do? Where would he go? What was going to happen? The answers, even if they had come, would have been pointless. A single man, scared and confused, could do nothing except follow instincts and try to keep moving. So he did. He walked out towards the small chain of stores out on the north side of Livington. Then he walked back toward Moss, checking all of the windows and doors as he went. And all were total, impenetrable darkness. At one point, passing a low half-window of a basement apartment, Drainer swore that he heard the screaming of a man, so he paused and bent down to the black and listened. There was screaming, horrible, heart-shifting, panicked screaming. 
screeching, crying, bellowing, sobbing, mindless. And it took over Drainer. Until now he had been avoiding the black covers, not wanted to feel the coldness and evil that pulsed through those seamed oddities. But hearing the pain of someone else, especially after seeing the streets so empty and deserted, Drainer could do nothing to stop himself. He sank into the cold lawn at the foot of the window and began tearing at the blackness, making no more dent on the outside than he did on the inside of his own. Instead of shredding the black lid, he was shredding his own fingernails. With every scrape, he tore off more nail from each finger, until it was down to skin, and he was leaving smears of blood all over the dark canvas. Drainer felt nothing but a need to find someone, to help to stop this from being his burden alone. Alone. Eventually the screaming stopped, fading away gradually into quiet darkness, but replacing it in furious intensity was the screaming of Drainer, his own braying at the moon. But Drainer didn't notice that the screaming from inside had stopped. Silence. His fingers were chewed and bloody and sweat was streaming down his face, mingling with rushing tears. His own mumbled screams had overtaken the rescue effort. It was more about his own hopelessness than anything else. Ear to the dark, cold, covering Drainer heard nothing more from beyond the black wall. It was stillness alone. And he looked down at his hands as the pain began to register. The fingers were nearly numb and the blood was beginning to clot both on his fingertips and on the back of his hand. The wheezing, scratchy throat he heard was his own. He groaned to clear it, but found his voice was gone, replaced by eerie attempts at speech. On his knees, legs bent underneath him in the posture of child. Drainer felt utterly lost and alone. Questions rattled in his head amongst the static hum of the air. The first questions were obvious and received no legitimate answer. What was going on? What were these coverings on every orifice of every house? Who had done it? What had done it? How had it been done at all? What had happened to people who were on the street at the time of the lock-in? What about the sky and the air and the heat and the cold and the windless feeling but the rushing clouds? What was happening? But the questions that truly bore into his head were these. Why was he out and no one else was? Why was he somehow special in all of this? Was he somehow different? How is it all related to his life and to him? No answers. No answers. Imperceptibly, Drainer noticed what looked like a rising sun breaking the distance of the peak roofs to the west. He turned his head and gazed, muted, at the bright light starring the vision of the surface. But the light was not growing as if with a movable earth. It was stationary and brilliant, and Drainer was drawn to it like a moth to the mirage of soapy water. Awaken. To make active or alert. The light was at the very end of Livington, which led up to the small foothills that paralleled the city. Drainer could see the light, now that he was looking for it, cresting between the peaks of Chance Rock and Mount Allen. In the small valley between the two peaking foothills, the light was a magnificent star of pure white. 
It drew Drainer out of his crouching position and onto the street. The light pulled him past blank stoplights and the screams of victims that grew and faded like horrible little waves. But he no longer cared about the screeches emitting from all those black stark covers, and although like any real hero, he'd have liked to have said that he passed the screams without stopping because he knew that his position was futile, in reality he was now motivated solely by the light pulsing from the V-shaped crevice of rocks and trees. As Drainer walked the blocks down Livington, he didn't even turn his head from side to side. It was of no use to watch the way giant houses looked muted and hopeless with the chains of black over every door and every window. And as the houses grew in size, so did the amount of asphalt-looking monstrosities. In the nicer parts of town on the heart of Livington, the houses were fairly dominated by the darkness of so many coverings, black on light a reality utterly disturbing. But Drainer didn't notice any of this. He was entirely focused on the unmoving light and his footsteps towards it. One in front of the other, blood was still drying on many parts of his body. Head, fingers, palms, knees. Inside houses, houses that lined the street, families were dying together, huddled in masses. From one home, Drainer could hear the nagging sound of a family crying profusely and begging for help. He could hear what sounded like children issuing muffled cries from buried mouths, adults crying with thinly disguised dignity waiting for someone else to rectify the situation. But Drainer walked on, one foot in front of the other, a step at a time. He was no hero. He just happened to get out. And now he was walking, moving towards the light. Step on, step on, step. He passed shops with buzzing neon lights that read open, even though no was in inside. And he passed parking lots with loads of cars, but not any people. He paused at the grocery store on Livington and Howells, peered in the advertisement-smeared windows. No one was inside. All the aisles were free and clear of anyone. He couldn't think where all the people in the cars had gone. He didn't know what to think about anything. The sun was up alongside the moon, clouds were still tracking as if on fast-forward loop behind the scenes. The ground was cold, but the air was hot. Everything seemed blown by a great wind, but he felt nothing on his face but sweat, tears, and blood. When he reached the edge of the foothills, that place where the plains of his hometown give way to sloping mountains of rock and trees, Drainer could see that he only had one hill between him and the blistering white light. It was man-made dam that held back the weight of the Horseshoe Reservoir. The reservoir was a giant lake that the city used for its water reserves. It was a great place to fish and have picnics. It was a magnet for families and lustful couples and cliff divers. And Drainer could see from the bottom of the hill that the light seemed to be hovering just above the lake. Or maybe even in it but he couldn't see anything yet except the same humming light-filled air. As he pushed past the rocks and yellow grasses, he felt forced to look away from the light. But for some reason, his mind would not allow him to look away. He knew that you had to watch for loose gravel and slippery grass, places that attracted a fall back down the sloping hill, but he could not pull his eyes away from the light. He was too close. The buzz was too loud. 
so he stumbled and fell and stumbled and fell all the way to the top of the hill. Dawn. To begin, to appear, to develop, etc. Once there, he thought that perhaps he would be blinded by so much intense bright air. Everything was a blur of shining light, no shadows anywhere. He couldn't see the water or the hills beyond the reservoir or the road that topped the dam. All was lost to white. It was in opposition to everything that had happened since Drainer had awoken. At that point, black had been the color shaking every thought from his mind. Now it was a stark naked white that glared into his brain and tore his eyes with a heat that seemed neither natural nor good. But in time, the light looked as if it had dropped a few levels, and now he could see the lake and the mountains and the road curving along the dam. And he could see all the bodies. The star of light, now contracted just slightly, was hovering above the reservoir like the Star of David. It was a small sun, complete with swirling blues and dark yellows at its center, enough to blind anyone, yet somehow mesmerizing and beautiful. And it was the body giving off such a static hum. Drainer thought it sounded as if a thousand televisions and thousand radios had all been left at full volume on stations of pure static. It broke one's mind so that no thoughts could penetrate. No thoughts except for the most odd, startling ones. And below that light and that static home was the lake, looking more silvery and bright than ever before. But the water was displaced and disfigured by its contents, hundreds of thousands of dead and decaying bodies. Filling the reservoir's entire mass were bodies and bodies and bodies, all dead, all rotting under the persistent heat of that hovering star. Drainer looked down the step hill, the backside of the dam, the path into the water, and should have been horrified. But he was not. Instead, he felt euphoria, warmth, smooth, straight, good feelings. Drainer looked at the bodies below and felt that there was something here that was immensely right. It was correct. The bodies looked cuddled and strong, like an army of silent, unmoving soldiers. And he recognized some of them. He saw his neighbor from two doors down, the checkout girl from the supermarket, and the teacher he'd had at the community college. He saw a friend he knew from work, a girl he passed every Sunday on his walk around the park, and the guy from the gas station down the block. They were all limp with death, grinning huge, overbearing grins. Step after step, Drainer took the path down to the water. He stopped only when both feet were dipped up to each ankle in the bloodied lake. He paused and he smiled. He smiled up at the big bright star and down at the corpses lying strewn about. He smiled inwardly at himself and thought of nothing but butterflies and summer days. The smell of fresh cut grass in a chlorine pool. Baking cookies and a beautiful woman's perfumed hair. He stepped into the water until it covered his head. Drainer drowned himself in the murky water, underneath the abnormal and unnatural heat of the shining light, and his body floated to the top of the water and bumped into the pile of useless flesh, just another body on the pyre. The static hum continued and the light shone on. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. 
Our second story is Dream Spinner by Robert E. Keller. Robert E. Keller writes mostly fantasy, along with a bit of science fiction. He has published a number of short stories in various online and print magazines, and is also hard at work on novels. He lives in northern Michigan and can be found at robertkeller.blogspot.com. Dream Spinner, written by Robert E. Keller. Crimson eyes glowered down at me from a stone ceiling. I glimpsed a bulbous black form with yellow spots. A faint flickering glow, perhaps from torchlight, would not allow me to make out many details, but what I saw was enough to drive a whimper from my lips and freeze my blood. I struggled to tear free, but whatever unseen forces locked me in place would not give way. The gleaming eyes cut into me like razors, promising an agony-filled death. The huge bulk shifted, a ripple running along it, perhaps legs uncoiling. Then a pale mist shot down into my face, and I was choking. I lurched forward in my rocking chair, gasping for breath. The nightmare had been so vivid that my old heart fluttered and my hand shook. My wife, Yeldra, strode from the kitchen and approached me with an annoyed look. Dreaming again, you old fool? Her sagging face twisted with contempt. You're like a little boy. Why don't you grow a backbone, mouse? My name's not Mouse. Don't call me that. Hands on her hips, Yeldra leaned over me, her face smug. What's your name, then? It seemed I could almost recall a name from long ago when I was young, but my memory was worn out now, battered and foggy from years of Gelder's revisionist belittling. Mouse is what you call me, I said, but I wasn't always named that. I had a real name once. She threw back her head, her laughter reeking with mockery. You were a mouse then? You're a mouse now, and you'll be a mouse on your deathbed. I forced my mouth open to protest, but it dropped shut, the will oozing right out of me. If you say so, dear, I guess one name's as good as another. So what's going on with those dreams? I shrugged. I, I don't know. I keep dreaming about a monster. Every time I fall asleep lately, it's the same nightmare. I can't shake it. Gelder waved me away. Just a scared little mouse. Well, don't go wetting yourself over a dream or I'll give you something to be scared of. Yes, dear. And furthermore, if you weren't so lazy, you wouldn't be sleeping all the time having bad dreams. Yes, dear. You trying to rile me up, mouse? No, dear. Sorry. You've never been a man and I can prove it. Why don't we have any children? I winced. I don't know. They just never... They just never what? It's because you're useless to the core. You don't have a bone in your body a real man would recognize. A bit of fire flared up in my belly. My voice dropped to a growl. I'm a man. Don't you say I'm not. I'll say what I want, she said, pressing her face near mine. Gelger's breath stank like rotten sauerkraut, but I dared not turn away. I breathed shallowly. All right, I said, the fire dying into ash. Whatever you say, 
I just wanted her to go away, foul breath and all. She slapped my face and stomped my back into the kitchen. My fists clenched as if locked onto her flabby neck. But a weak will and a lame body kept me in my chair like the cowardly rodent she always said I was. And truthfully, I was terrified. The nightmares were getting the best of me. I dreaded falling asleep, but I was growing so tired I could hardly stay awake most of the time. I needed to talk to Gelder about the dreams when she was in a better mood. She was a strong, clear-minded woman, and sometimes she could offer sound advice. But it's when she wasn't biting off my head, so to speak. I was an old man, my body worn out from years of working in a mine. My memory was slipping, and I spent my days sitting in my rocking chair, struggling to recall the past, while Geldra took care of me. I needed her desperately, and she always responded by making sure I had enough to eat. My clothes were washed, and I took the medicine that reduced the pain in my joints. I had no else in life. I groaned, my eyelids growing heavy. I couldn't fight it anymore. My eyes sprang open, and I found myself gazing up at the cave-like stone ceiling again, covered in flickering shadows as if from firelight. I could hear something dragging and scraping below me, some heavy bulk that I couldn't turn my head to look at. I was lying on my back and could feel nothing supporting me as if I were suspended in the air. Vibrations shook me, and I knew the monster was closing in on me. I tried to cry out, but even my throat muscles were paralyzed. I wanted to grab a weapon to defend myself. An axe came to mind, but all I could do was lay there and await my doom. What did this creature want from me? I could almost remember some great truth that was struggling to surface. I closed my eyes, and... I could smell a disgusting stench like sauerkraut gone bad. When I at last dared to look, I found myself gazing into some twisted, writhing maw. Pale mist shot out to once again choke off my air. With a cry, I snapped awake and bumped heads with Geldra. I gagged at the smell of her breath and contemplated why the monster stench had been similar. Was the beast in my nightmares... A reflection of how I truly viewed my wife? Ow! Geldra bellowed, clutching her forehead. She slapped my face. I've had just about enough of you in those silly dreams. But but it was so real, I said, rubbing my stinging cheek. I've never felt fear like that. Please, dear, what can I do? Geldra sighed and shook her head, her face softening. I don't know, but I can talk to the healer and see if he's got any medicine that might help. But dreams are just dreams. They won't hurt you, so quit crying about it. But something is after me, I said, almost believing it. A monster is waiting for me to fall asleep. It's stalking me, and I feel like it's plotting something horrible. Her face flushing with anger. Gelder reached out as if she were going to seize my beard, but then she pulled her hand back. Enough of your whining. Dream monsters aren't real. And why haven't you shaved off that beard like I've been telling you? That's a rat's nest, that thing is. 
I clamped my hand over my beard. Geldra hated beards, and she was always trying to persuade me to get rid of mine. It was the one command of hers that I did refuse. My beard was the last symbol of my independence from her. It was a scraggly, downright ugly old thing, but I felt if I shaved it off, I would truly be worth nothing. I'm keeping it, I said, looking away. It's grotesque, Mouse. Not only that, but every time I touch it, my hand itches. It's like you've got something crawling around in there. It creeps me out. There's nothing in my beard, I said, but I wondered if she was right. Now that she mentioned it, it did feel like tiny things were moving around in there. Or was that just my imagination? I scratched my beard. See, it itches. I knew it. You've got lice in there or something worse, she shuddered. I shrugged. But I'm still keeping it, and that's final. We'll see, Gelder said. Anyway, I'll visit the healer today and see what I can get for those dreams of yours, and I'm going to ask him about that beard, too, and see if he has something that will kill whatever might be crawling around in there. For now, just try to stay awake. Maybe if you get up and move around a bit, it would help. Here's your medicine. She pushed a tin cup full of some dark liquid to my lips. I hated the medicine, which tasted like bitter syrup, but... It did make me feel better and allowed me to walk. Finally, I forced my mouth open and allowed her to pour the stuff down my throat. I coughed and I gagged. I'll be back in an hour or so, Gelger said, frowning. Stay awake, mouse. I don't want you dying of fright. With that, she shuffled out of the house. Groaning, I stood up. The medicine hadn't yet taken effect, but... I wasn't going to sit in that chair and risk another nightmare. I paced around the house looking things over and trying to remember my past. I had been a miner most of my life and had been married to Geldra for more than 40 years. I'd never really done anything exciting. My life had been nothing but backbreaking work and a sullen, nagging wife. Was it any wonder my spirit was all but broken? My house was a bland reflection of my life, simple and plain, just how Geldra liked it. Nothing really stood out, and most of the yellow walls were bare. If I would have had a say in anything, I would have livened up the place a bit, but my opinion was worthless. I scratched my beard and gazed out a window along the road that wound down the mountain. I was watching for Geldra and playing... She would bring me something to end the nightmares. I couldn't understand how, if my life had been so boring. I was now having strange dreams that seemed completely unconnected to anything from my past. The nightmares had popped out of nowhere for no apparent reason. At last, Geldra returned empty-handed, slamming the door shut behind her. She glared at me with an I-told-you-so look. The healer says you've been infected by a weird type of mite. It gets in a man's beard and causes him to have terrible dreams where he can actually see the creature attacking him. That's not possible, I protested. I've caught enough glimpses of the monster to know it's huge, bigger than a man. 
Galder rolled her eyes impatiently. Yes, yes, I know. That's how you see the might in your dreams. Much bigger than it actually is. Anyway, this ailment has been going around among the men with beards. The mites probably got on my clothes when I was in town and I brought them back to you. How can I get rid of them? I asked, already suspecting what her answer would be. The healer said there's only one way, she explained. You have to lop off that beard and keep it off for a while. I clutched my beard, my hand trembling. I won't do it. It's only temporary, Mouse. Then you can grow it back. Although why you'd want to is beyond me. She grabbed a pair of scissors and a straight razor and approached me. Won't take me long, and then you'll be free of those nightmares. Get back, I cried. Don't you touch my beard. For some reason, rage was building inside me. Her eyes widened. Don't give me orders, Mouse. I'm the one that runs this household, remember? I lowered my gaze, my spirit weakening. Seeing that I was faltering, Gelder pressed on. I take care of your sorry hide. What kind of shape would you be in if it wasn't for me? You'd be homeless or dead. Not only am I the brains of this marriage, but I also do all the work. I used to work, I said. Pretty hard, too. Harder than you. She grabbed my shoulder and shook me, glowering down at me. I was a short man, not even five feet tall, and she outweighed me by at least a hundred pounds. You've never worked harder than me, you little scab, and you never will. And anyway, you're damaged goods now. You can't even stand up without that medicine I make you drink each night. Again, I lowered my gaze. Nevertheless, I worked hard. I don't care, Galger said. The point I'm making is that you're nothing without me. You've led a pathetic life, and you'll die a poor excuse for a man. The only thing you have to boast about is that you have a wonderful wife who takes care of you. You got it? Yes, dear. Louder, she bellowed. Yes, dear. She slapped my face. Better never backtalk me again or I'll knock you silly. Now let's get that ugly beard off your face so you can get some decent sleep for a change and quit whining about your scary nightmares. I started a nod, then shook my head. Rage began to build again. You won't take my beard, I said, my hand shaking. Before you do that, I'll... You'll do what, she snarled. You dare make threats against me? Some type of nasty mite is crawling around in there, you old fool. That gnarled bush needs to come off. She moved the scissors towards my beard. My rage burning out of control, I slapped the scissors from Gelder's hand. She gasped, Those mites are controlling your mind! They're making you do crazy things! Maybe they are, I said, and maybe that's a good thing. What are you saying? Gelder cried. Challenging my authority is not a good thing. Without me, you'd be done for. You couldn't even keep yourself fed. That might well be, I said, but at least I'd be a free man and not a slave. She raised her hand to slap me, then lowered it. I'm done arguing. That beard has to come off, and I mean right now. Again, the rage erupted. Try it, and you'll be sorry. Gelder laughed. We'll see who's sorry, little man. She bent to pick up the scissors, but I kicked them away. Scum! 
She shouted. She seized my beard and yanked it. My rage boiled over. My blood was boiling, too. I could feel something awaken inside me. I'll kill you for that, I seethed. My vision darkened and the room began to waver. A sense of unreality washed over me. I tried to move, but something was holding me fast. I could feel thin strands like ropes all over me, binding me tightly. With a roar, I tore myself free of the invisible bonds. I lunged forward and seized Galdra's throat. I was suddenly strong like the roots of the mountains. A fire raged within me, and in my mind old memories sprang to life. I could hear hammers falling on stone, and I could smell iron from the forge. Battle lust gripped me, and I squeezed her throat with the single-minded desire of choking her head right off her neck. Making hideous, gargling noises, she fought back in a panic. Two more arms sprouted from her sides, and four new crimson eyes opened in her forehead. She continued changing until she became the creature from my nightmares, as my vision darkened until it finally went black. My eyesight cleared, and I found myself standing in a torchlit stone cavern, draped with thick webs. I stood on a web above the cave floor, and a chest full of shining treasure caught my eye from below. But my focus was on the giant spider I was strangling. Her eight legs were wrapped around me, trying to crush me before I could throttle her. But <clears throat> my back was protected by stout armor, and she couldn't break it. At last her legs grew limp around me, and I shoved the dead spider away. My hands were covered in her black blood, and I wiped them on my trousers. The stench would remind me of my victory in the hours ahead. You wanted my beard, I said, kicking the bloated carcass. You knew if you took that away in my dreams. I was beaten in life, and you could have finished me off easily, but you underestimated me. Ripping the last of the webbing free from my legs, I grabbed my axe which was hanging suspended nearby. I tore it free and jumped down to the cavern floor. The treasure chest still stood open, the gold and jewels sparkling in the glow of the torch I had dropped when the spider descended on me. How long had I been snared in her web? How long had she kept me prisoner in that dream? Considering the torch still burned, it couldn't have been very long. Yet, it seemed like I had lived a lifetime trapped in that nightmare as a spineless man married to an overbearing nag. I struggled to remember, but already the dream was growing foggy in my mind, being replaced with memories of battle and adventure. Chills crept down my spine as I realized how thin the line between reality and fantasy could become. For a moment, I lost focus, feeling very vulnerable. But then I shrugged it off, my eyes lighting up at the sight of the treasure. I was a stout fellow, not giving to dwelling on strange fears or doubts. Rather, this was a moment of celebration. I had slain a mighty foe, found my fortune, and my beard was still intact. What more could a dwarf ask for in life?
And finally, our third story will be introduced and read by Amy Tapia. Follow her on Twitter at Brooks and Dunn Girl. Today's story is entitled Running Empty in a Land of Decay. The author, Damien Walters Grintalis, was imprinted with a love of books at an early age by her father and has been writing for most of her life. She is a member of the HWA, is represented by Mark McVeigh of the McVeigh Agency, and lives in Maryland with her husband, two cats, one old ferret, and two rescued pit bulls. Her novel, Ink, a grim tale about a man, a tattoo, and a sailor, is currently on submission. You can follow her on Twitter at twitter.com dwgrintalis or visit her blog at dwgrintalis.blogspot.com. And now the story, Running Empty in a Land of Decay, by Damien Walters Grintalis. The first few miles of any run are the hardest. Your muscles protest and your lungs scream. But once you push past all the hurt, you get to the good part. The part where the world zips by in bright flashes of color and your conscious thoughts fade away. In that zone, you hear, but don't hear. See, but don't see. You breathe in and out, moving forward. Moving on. You might even try to catch that elusive four-minute mile. You don't look back or pause to gaze at the scenery. You just head for that finish line, whether it's an actual line, a mile marker, or the end of a street. When I run now, with the pedometer clicking away the steps and the miles, I pretend everything is normal. I pretend I'm not running away, even though there's nothing left to run away from. But I can't turn off my thoughts anymore. It's been a long time since I've seen one of the dead. Months, maybe a year, maybe longer than that. Hard to tell. Time is funny now. They're nothing more than a few scraps of putrescent flesh lingering here and there. They came with limited mileage, like running shoes. It's been even longer since I've seen anyone alive. The streets here are clear. No cars, no rotting bodies, no potholes. My feet keep moving, the rhythm steady and sure. Mike always said running was my obsession. That obsession saved my life more than once. More than the gun I still carry in my backpack, even though I don't need it anymore. Curse me for a fool, even when all I saw were bodies, bloodstains on pavement and torn clothing blowing in the wind like farewell handkerchiefs. I kept running hoping I'd find someone else. And then, I didn't have a reason to stop. Mike and I survived the first few months barricaded in our apartment. A lot of folks left San Francisco in the beginning. Most of the dead followed suit, following the food source. We took turns making supply runs, up until the day he came back with a bite on his arm. I pretended he was immune and wouldn't die, but he wasn't. And he did. When Mike reopened his eyes, he wasn't there. The stranger wearing his face staggered toward me, all gnashing teeth and furious hunger. I shot him in the head. I could barely see through my tears, but I didn't hesitate. He'd made me promise not to. 
Before he fell to the floor, I saw a flash of the real him deep inside. For one quick second, his open mouth wasn't a gaping maw of destruction, but a smile. At least I'd like to think so. It doesn't matter now. Nothing does. Nothing except my shoes hitting the pavement one after the other and the breeze thick with the salt tang of the ocean. I left my original pair of shoes, flecked with blood and gore, next to Mike's body. I picked up this pair a couple of hundred miles back. Funny how no one touched the running stores. I guess they didn't realize the importance of good shoes. I've left shoes along the way, every three hundred miles or so, always with the scuffed toes pointing east. I left one pair on the edge of an empty water fountain in Utah, another next to a cornfield in Kansas, and still another by a railroad track in Missouri. I left the pair that gave me a blister in Kentucky right before I crossed into Virginia. I forgot where I left the others. It's hard to keep track. Everything is the same. Empty streets. Vacant houses with broken windows. The awful silence. And the sick, sweet stink of rot. Except here. The breeze floats by again. Salt and sea. No decay. I pick up my pace. It's not a four-minute mile or even a fiver, but it's brisk enough. I should have left notes in the shoes, so anyone who found them would at least know my name. Except there's no one left. I know that, even when I pretend I don't. The roar of the waves crashes in on the quiet, a lullaby beckoning me forward. I've never seen the Atlantic Ocean in person. I know it's colder than the Pacific, and gray-green instead of blue, but there are no memories here. No mic, no gunshot echoing off the plaster walls, no running from the dead with their bloody mouths in reaching hands, and no useless hope. I sit down on the curb, my muscles quivering, and unlace my shoes, my last pair. I leave my socks and the pedometer on the pavement and tie my shoelaces together in a double knot. I set them next to the socks, but after a few seconds pick them back up. What's the point? A knot tightens in my chest. Tears blur my vision. I scramble to my feet. With a shout, I throw the shoes up over my head. A series of dull taps fills the air. I spin around. Caught by the laces, the shoes are hanging from a dead power line, swaying back and forth. I was here, they say, and no one will ever know. I turn away, the tears flowing down my cheeks. Eventually, the laces will rot and the shoes will fall. I hope they land pointing in the right direction. The sand, warm and cool at the same time, slips between my toes as I make my way across the beach, walking now, not running. The water shimmers in the sunlight. Maybe it will wash everything away. All the miles, all the blood, all the hurt. After that, maybe I'll move into one of the beach houses, gather supplies and books, and relax for a decade or three. Or maybe 
I'll stay in the water and head out until the waves spill over my head, until the undertow tucks me away. I don't know, but I'm not running anymore. The end. And here is a brief author's note about the story Running Empty in a Land of Decay. This story was born from a flash fiction contest on the Shock Totem Forum. The photo showed a pair of shoes hanging over a power line, and for the contest, we had to come up with a flash fiction piece about the hanging shoes. I had a clear picture pop in my head of a person running, surrounded by a bleak, empty landscape, and from there, the rest of the story came out in a rush. When I finished, I'll be honest, I rolled my eyes because really, does the world need yet another zombie tale? I thought about changing it to some sort of plague, then realized the zombies were incidental. The real story was about the narrator trying to outrun the ghosts of a dead world in a personal race of sorrow with the ocean as the finish line. As always, I have a few people to thank for making this happen. First, Rhonda Parrish, who graciously agreed to join in on this and gave us these great authors and stories. I also want to thank the authors, J.A. Tyler, Robert E. Keller, and D.W. Grintalis. Our readers, Amy Tapia and Monster Matt Patterson. Thanks again for all your hard work. Of course, thanks also goes to you, dear listener. If you liked what you heard this week, please blog about it, share it on Facebook and Twitter, and if possible, donate to help keep our heads above water. Join us next time for a new story of the month from S&M Horror Magazine. Our music today was courtesy of The Contrarian. Find more of his greatness at contrarianmedia.com. This episode was produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. You can share it all you want, just don't change it or try to sell it. Until next time, stay well. <laughs>